This passage comes from Luke 16, 19-31. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat the food which fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you will be in agony. And besides all this, between us and you are a great chasm, which has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, They will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Today, uh, we get to talk about some more gospel passages from the book of Luke. I know last week you talked about uh, the shrewd businessman, the shrewd uh, manager, and how Jesus kind of commended him for, for doing something with grace that wasn't his, like offering grace that wasn't his. And the, the theme that came out of it was you can't serve two masters, right? You cannot serve God and you cannot serve money at the same time because you will love one and hate the other or vice versa. And how we are called as a church and as people to, to be generous without expectation. Well, continuing on in this theme of power and money and wealth, uh, we look at the passage that was read earlier uh, by Carly to, called The Rich Man and Lazarus. And so uh, The Rich Man and Lazarus, we're going to go through this story line by line, which I know we just heard, but the way I like to approach my uh, teaching and studying, I guess, is to kind of break it down and tell the story out loud um, and to kind of go and give it a narrative feel. So just to bring the two characters into play, we have Lazarus, who was a poor man. And actually, out of all the parables Jesus told in the Bible, here's a fun fact for you. If you can win at Jeopardy, you can give me some of your winnings. But Lazarus, that's the only name given to anybody in any of Jesus's parables. Nobody else is given a name except for this parable, the man named Lazarus. And so Lazarus is there. He's very poor. And there is the rich man. That's basically who these two main characters of this parable are. Lazarus was a man so poor that he had open sores and wounds that the dogs licked. And not like the house dogs or anything, but like the dirty stray dogs of the street uh, were licking his wounds. You can't get much lower than that. That You really have no will to like shoo these dogs away or do anything. But you also, uh, I think this little 
quote in here is his desire. All he longed for was to eat the food that was left over from the rich man. So he, he, didn't, he wasn't advocating for like change and more taxes to feed himself or he wasn't like uh, demanding he be taken care of or anything. His only hope that we read in this story, his only hope is that he could eat the scraps of the table or the trash of the rich man whose gate he stayed outside of. Now the other person, the rich man, is exactly the opposite of Lazarus. You couldn't get any more opposite. He was uh, very wealthy. He wore purple clothes, which is a sign of like royalty or a high position uh, in scripture. He feasted, uh, this word I love, sumptuously. It's a good word, but he, he ate whatever he wanted and as much as he wanted and as often as he wanted. And he really wanted for nothing. He was rich and well taken care of. And so that's what we get, the two settings. And then what happens? The very next thing that happens in this story is they both, they both die. That's it. There, there's, we get these little bits of information about them, and then they both, their lives end. Probably roughly at the same time. And I think one of the truths about life currently, and before Jesus comes back, is that there's death. It's something I talk about at funerals, and it's kind of a, a sad reality, but everybody dies right now. And so in death, everybody is equal. It doesn't matter if you are a uh, poor person, like from a prison, or a person that cannot afford a lavish funeral, and you're forgotten about very quickly after, or nobody even remembers you to forget about you, or you're the Queen of England who had people for hundreds of miles lining the road to watch her, her casket just pass by. And these two stories, both of them are dead. And to me, I know this may be a weird thing, uh, a weird comfort, but that is um, it's somewhat of a comfort that no matter what happens, we are all on equal footing. And so that means what the life that we live and where we're at now matters so very much. The life that we have now is precious, and how we interact with other people is very, very, very important because it has lifelong impacts, not only the people around you and the lives that they lead while you're living, but it has eternal uh, consequences and impacts on your own life. And so we see this in there. This picture here could be like basically their funerals. We have the poor man who uh, is buried in an unmarked grave, probably thrown in the city dump. In this picture, it is uh, people being brought out of the back of a U-Haul. Or you have the rich man who was so wealthy that people celebrated him. He was buried, which means he had a plot of land to live on or, or to be buried into. People mourned for him. And then what happens is the poor man, Lazarus, is carried up by angels to be in the presence of Abraham. Or in the translations, it's the bosom. So the most intimate place of Abraham is where Lazarus is taken. And the rich man he ends up in this place called Hades, or hell, eternal suffering and torment. And for whatever reason, Abraham can see, or sorry, the rich man can see Abraham and Lazarus in this huge gulf and this huge divide. Now Abraham, the reason he's so important in this story is because he's the, like the, the ultimate forefather of our faith, right? He's the first person that God called uh, to follow him and he would be blessed. And so he is like, super important in uh, our faith. And the rich man looks up and he says, or even his, sorry, in his torment, he's able to look up and he says to 
to Abraham, he says, Hey, Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water so that he may cool my tongue because I cannot deal with it anymore. He says, actually, cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So even in this great divide, in this torment that he is suffering and dealing with, he looks up and he sees Lazarus in this position of great intimacy with all other believers. And he doesn't talk to Lazarus. He doesn't get it yet. He addresses Abraham and tells Abraham to send Lazarus down to take care of his needs. So even in this torment, Lazarus was treated as nothing more than a person less than the rich man who was meant to serve his desires and his needs. And Abraham looks back down at the rich man and he basically says, no, <laughs> no thank you. We're not going to do that. He says, uh, he says, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. So you had a good life, rich man. And Lazarus had a really, really bad life. And so now these roles are reversed. So the rich man, in desperation, and perhaps uh, I might be reading into this, so this is the Jeremy interpretation right here, but perhaps for the first time he thinks of other people or people other than himself. And he begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house so that his five brothers could not suffer the same torment that he is suffering. And again, in this little exchange, where he says, Father, send Lazarus to my family. Lazarus, again, is treated as nothing more than a servant to care for the needs of the rich person and his family. So he's starting to kind of get it, but he doesn't fully get it yet. Abraham says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the rich man replies, No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So in this desperation, he's saying, send Lazarus, because it's going to be amazing if this dead guy comes to them and says, hey, make sure you watch yourself because you might end up like your brother suffering in hell. And Abraham says, no, they already have people to look to. Abraham wants Lazarus to Christmas story him, right? The night of past, present, and future. And I've been thinking about this last statement for, uh, I mean, during this sermon that we're preaching right now, but for a long time in uh, understanding God and Jesus and Christ and the idea of, uh, or the, the concept that Jesus died for our sins. And uh, the question basically boils down to this. I just want you to stick with me for a minute. Here's the question. Did Jesus need to die and rise again for us to have faith in God, the creator of the universe and all things good? Did Jesus need to do that? You can see in this story, the story that Jesus is telling, this parable, Jesus has not died. Jesus has not risen from the grave in this moment. Abraham tells him, you have the prophets, you have the law, and you have love to have faith. 
You have everything you need to have faith in who God is and who God uh, says he is the creator of the universe. I don't think Jesus came to die for us to have faith. I think Jesus died to restore the relationship and the eternal communion with God into its right restoration. Because I, I, I don't know about you, I could be projecting, but I don't think when we came to faith, when I came to faith, I'll just speak for myself. When I came to faith in believing who Jesus was, I did not see a dead man standing in front of me who had risen from the dead. I had faith that that was true, and I believe that God has interacted in my life to confirm that that was true. And I know that's possible because Jesus died and repaired that great rift between us. But it's by faith that we can believe and accept the precious gift of mercy, restoration, and adoption into God's family. It's by faith that we believe Christ demonstrated power over death by raising from the dead. And it's by faith that we believe that grace goes before us and is working in the hearts of people around us, in our families, in our schools, and in our neighborhood here in East Dallas. It's by faith that that happens. And it's because of Jesus' sacrifice that we can, we can know that that happens, and that we can believe that that happens. But I think if we just reduce Christ's death, Jesus' death, to something that had to happen for me, to feel good about me, to secure my eternal salvation, then we start to become very close to the rich man who demands that God works and has benefited me in this whole life. It's very easy to be like the rich man and believe that we have some special status and prestige in front of God, not because we believe that we are adopted and co-heirs in Christ, but we simply deserve it because we proclaim the faith. And it's sometimes easy to believe what we proclaim and that we are like the rich man because of this history of being formed as a Christian nation quote-unquote Christian nation, that we are blessed above all others, that it is okay for us to step over the poor, to step over the lost, to step over the brokenhearted, the marginalized, the destitute, and forgotten people of this world, simply because we proclaim the faith. Every time you seek to wield power over other people in pursuit of self-gain, simply because you have the means to, makes you the rich man in this story. I would say this story is not about going to the absolute extreme of living in abject poverty yourself, giving everything up and uh, denouncing everything that you have and just giving, and some people do that and that is part of their faith journey where they just, they give up everything, they take a vow of poverty. But I don't think that's what this story is about. In fact, I think that it's, some people will be blessed and will be given, that's not blessed, that's not the right word. Some people will be given the responsibility to have great amounts of wealth in their lifetime. I, know, I think this because in the other reading, one of the other readings from the lectionary from this week, we look at the, uh, the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, where there are instructions given to people who have great wealth. And this is, what it says. This is uh, first verses 9 through 11 in chapter 6. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. It kind of sounds like the fruits of the Spirit that will become evident as you become more into relationship with the Holy Spirit. Later in the chapter, he says, Command those who are rich and in, pres and in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Our wealth and our money and the pursuit of that above all else becomes an idol and replaces God of who we're actually supposed to be worshiping. At Journey, one of the core beliefs that we say is we want to leverage our abilities, our influences, and our resources to bless others without expectation. And you've probably heard that a million times, and you'll probably hear it a million more because that's who we believe God has called us to do. And I think that's what God is talking to us about in this story, that we should not be stepping over those who have uh, less than what we have been blessed with, but we should be blessing others with what we have because everybody has something. Our abilities, our influences, and our resources are what we should be using to bless others without expectation, without pursuing prestige and power and in, like, like dominion over other people. We don't, we, don't want to believe, we don't want to be the rich man looking up when we're dead and gone, saying, what did we do wrong? Today we're going to end our time with the prayer of confession, which I think is so important in this is the life of the church. And after the prayer of confession, we'll read the Lord's Prayer, and then we'll take communion together. And so confession is an opportunity for us, especially in this message here today, to ask for forgiveness and to confess when we have wielded our power over other people in selfish desires marginalizing the other people. When we get done with that, we'll say this prayer that God taught, or Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, which I think is such a great, a great thing that we can say this prayer together. And then we'll come to the table remembering and understanding that we're to live like Jesus lived, sacrificially and full of love. The table that we come to, the communion table, is a table of sacrifice a remembrance that Christ went to the cross and died for our sins so that our relationship could be restored and that we could pursue after God's love. So the prayer of confession is going to show up on the screen here, and I would invite you all to say this prayer with us, or with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to just take a moment and just take a big breath in and a big breath out. And then I'm going to give a couple so, uh, seconds of silence for you to 
there's anything you have to confess individually, and then we'll say the Lord's Prayer together. So let's take a deep breath in, and exhale, and I'll be quiet for just a couple seconds. Let's pray together the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.